I, I don't see myself as being a, a franchise holder. You know, I, I share a set of values with Irish Republicans all across the country, be they Cork, Waterford, Belfast, Galway, Dublin, you know, rural, urban. Um, we're all different. We all have different needs in our, but we have a shared vision for the country. Uh, obviously, we want to see a new Ireland, a united Ireland. We want to see strong health services, public services. This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 170 for the 18th of January 2024. No rant this time because we have a long interview with Porrick McLaughlin of Sinn Féin and I think it's worth giving you the whole thing pretty much unedited, apart from the odd cough on my part. Anyway, here we go. On the line, I have Sinn Féin's chief whip in the doll, Porrick McLaughlin, TD, from Donegal. Um, Porrick, if you look at the polls over the past couple of years, Sinn Féin is consistently 10 to 15 points ahead of both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. There's been a couple of times there where you're equal to the two of them put together. So that looks like at least a very strong possibility you'll be going into government. And I want to ask you about your approach to different issues because of that. One area that the current government, I think, has failed miserably on is the housing crisis. Some people on the left in Ireland say, in fact, there is no housing crisis, that it's a rental crisis, and the only problem is inadequate regulation of the rental market. On the other hand, the, there's research from the uh, the Housing Commission, which was reported in the Irish Times. It says that Ireland needs 62,000 new homes built every year until 2050. Which of them is wrong? Well, I think it's a combination. Um, there's no doubt that we, uh, after the financial crisis, um, mm-hmm. failed to build particularly social housing. Uh, I mean, there was a period there uh, of about 10 years mm-hmm. uh, where we just stopped building social housing. That has yep. had a huge knock-on impact in that people who should have been housed were in the private rental sector. That has pushed up the cost of rent. Uh, so all of these matters are interconnected. I think the difficulty now, William, is that if you look at all facets of our society, if you look at multinationals who are trying to attract quality employees, mm-hmm. if you look at schools, hospitals, across the board now, everybody we talk to tells us that the housing crisis is the most fundamental issue that we so, need to address. So you agree we need to build houses good old. Yeah. Will Sinn Féin have a target for the number of total number of houses uh, to be built every year when you're in government? Well, the the target in terms uh, of start, social... Start, start, I'm going to be strict on you, Park. Start with a yes or no. You can explain, but will you have a target yes, or not? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, right, right now we've stated that the target for social and affordable is 21,000 uh, mm-hmm. homes. So, uh, you know, we've clearly categorised that. We've talked about uh, 12,000 of them being uh, social and then the remainder being affordable. And, mm-hmm. and that's costed. I mean, we have very capable spokespersons in terms of Owen O'Brennan Housing, mm-hmm. Pierce Charity sure. and Finance. They take what they do very seriously in target setting so absolutely and that's the scale oh, okay. of ambition well, throw, throw, throw in, but the, because the housing commission which i think is correct says sixty-two thousand a year we are somewhere between a third and a half of that at the moment what number if you were to average out over a five years of a Sinn Féin government what number would be a failure for Sinn Féin that if it was below x number of houses built per year on average what would be a failure 
well, you know, you have, you have two areas here. You have the responsibility of government mm -hmm. to deliver public housing. Mm -hmm. So that's social and affordable. And then you have the private sector. Um, and our, our job fundamentally in government is to deliver on the targets that we've set, which are 21,000 social and affordable. If you look right now... Sure, yeah, but one way, one way you could do deliver that is by cannibalising the private sector and you end up with the same number of houses. And I think people who are getting well into their 30s, whose entire lives are on hold because they're living with their parents. They can't get married or start a household. They literally can't have children because they can't get the accommodation. They don't really care who built the house. What they care about is whether they get a house. And if you achieve that social and affordable target by just reducing the number of private bills, that doesn't really help anyone. Total number, what's the target? No, no, just to be clear now, mm -hmm. when we talk about the type of families that you're talking about, I mean, for example, mm -hmm. the uh, the Society of Chartered Surveyors Ireland uh, in their recent report revealed that in Dublin, you'd have to earn €127,000 to be able to afford a basic three-bedroom semi-detached house. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, you know, that has to be the basic home that we want for our families. Yep. In somewhere like Donegal, it's €85,000. And I can tell you in Donegal, mm -hmm. very few families earn that type of money. So that's why we talk about affordable housing intervening uh, and building on publicly owned land. Sure, sure but ho hold, on, hold on for a second with that part, because there's a whole number of different schemes which are things like helping somebody get to, to get a deposit together or people suggesting that there should be some banking regulation whereby the rent that they've, they're able to pay should be uh, used to assess what mortgage they can pay and people saying that they're paying more in rent than they would in mortgage. The thing that all of those have in common is that they rejig, perhaps, perhaps they don't, but they rejig who gets the houses. If you essentially use a tax break or some other uh, mechanism like that to give Johnny a leg up to buy the house, what that means is that he's able to outbid Mary. That's essentially what's happening. And that is a zero-sum game. And... I would be enormously critical of people like the housing minister, O'Brien, uh, who is essentially tweaking with the, these. And they may be populist and there may be people out there who said, well, I couldn't have bought the house unless I got this grant or that grant. But the bottom line is that average across society, what that actually means is just that people are able to go further into debt to buy the house. The sum of the individual solutions is different to the total solution. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that there's no doubt that Darrell O'Brien's approach in putting in place these various schemes for first home buyers, he, he was warned about this, that mm -hmm. it would drive up housing prices, and that has been proven absolutely mm. correct. If you look now across yeah, Europe... If, if, if there's 100 houses and 110 people, and the 100th person has X amount of money, that's the, the 100th, per, 100th person gets the house and the 101st doesn't if you give everybody 20 grand more what you've just done is you've put up the price of every house by 20 grand and nobody there's no no other difference and that that's essentially just a taxpayer money going straight into the pockets of developers will you commit to abolishing those schemes yes i mean owen o'brien our spokesperson has been you know deeply critical of that and as i say if you look at the landscape now across europe mm -hmm. uh, the the rising interest rates 
have meant that house prices have come down pretty mm-hmm. much all across Europe, except mm-hmm. in Ireland. Uh, and I think that's the approach of Darrell Bryan uh, has failed in this regard. Our approach is to focus on genuine affordable housing mm-hmm. and cost rental um, and key targets to deliver that. So what we're saying is if we get the opportunity to be in government, we will undertake the biggest program in the history of state with a big focus in that area of social and affordable and cost rental. Okay. Um, can I give you a compliment? Yes, please. I don't ever argue with that. Not only uh, yourself, but other people, particularly Martin Kenny, have been very outspoken on travellers' rights. Sinn Féin, I think, is seen by some as a populist party. I don't know. I, I don't want to get into labelling. You know, I don't know if you'd fit that mould uh, exactly, but I, I don't particularly want to get into that. But it is absolutely true that, you know, you could have taken a position that maybe some other people take that and not taking that maybe has cost you votes Martin Kenny had his car burnt out for his trouble and at a time when and the car was right beside his house where his family was inside. That's a, you know, like a terrible thing to happen uh, for anyone. You won't get any politician explicitly supporting that type of violence, but you know, there's plenty of politicians out there who are saying things along the lines of, you know, of course we're in favour of traveller accommodation, but it's just not suitable for my constituency, that sort of thing. Politicians who are doing that are winking at racists, aren't they? I think we have a responsibility um, to listen to communities, to talk sure, to communities. Sure, yeah, but, 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 but rich, rich people who are representing other rich people in fairly wealthy areas of the country who have come up with pretty spurious and tenuous reasons to object to halting sites, for example. It's not a good look, is it? Yeah, I mean, like I, I am of traveller heritage myself. Yeah. And, um, and I... I, I even though I, I wasn't raised, I suppose, in a, in a traveling uh, community environment, I, mm-hmm. I was raised, my, my family had settled before I was born, um, but I felt the responsibility to say it. Um, mm-hmm. And and that also to say that I, I'm from the settled community, mm-hmm. but I am of traveler heritage. I understand um, the wall of distrust that has been there, the irresponsible and uh, leadership and lack of leadership that have mm-hmm. been there historically that creates a misunderstanding. Um, so I think there's a huge job work to be done to break down those barriers of distrust. To mm-hmm. to 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 you know to talk about what is the traveling community, what is their heritage, what is their place in our history. I mean, uh, we have. Um, the Commission on Itinerancy, which was a, a shameful and scandalous report in the 1960s, which set mm-hmm. the scene for decades and basically said that these people are a problem. Mm-hmm. You know that there was, the, you know, their history was to be uh, diminished, destroyed, um, and that that has proven to be a huge mistake. To switch topic, perhaps for a moment, legislation has been passed to reduce Ireland's uh, carbon dioxide emissions. There. Are- different requirements for different sectors. So the electricity sector is required to reduce its carbon dioxide output to 75% below its 2018 level by 2030. We have six years to achieve that. Transport needs a 50% reduction. Agriculture is getting a 25% reduction. That's remarkable because agriculture on its own is nearly two-fifths of the total uh, CO2 emissions. Does Sinn Féin support all of these requirements? We support the targets. Um, we, uh, we targets very, or requirements? No, we, we, we support the targets. Uh, I, I think the issue we have with government, and this is where 
um, there has been very serious failing is that mm-hmm. we, we believe in the carrot uh, more than the stick approach. If you want to change practices, if you want to change behaviors, if you want to achieve it, you have to, for example, the farming community. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have huge tracts of land that we could, could be used for solar projects, could be used mm-hmm. for renewable energy projects. You know, uh, you, you can you know, create uh, an incentive, a financial incentive for people to change behavior. If you look around, uh, we're but, surrounded but, but, by... Pause, pause that for that uh, for a second. This issue is of such urgency that the Paris Agreement says we need to cut by 50% from 2018 to 2030, six years of that left, and to net zero by 2050. Are there enough carrots out there to get people down even well, to the 2030 target? I mean, one, one example I would give you is that, you know, when we talk about solar, renewable, mm-hmm. um, green, hydrogen, uh, offshore renewable, which is going to be a huge contribution, yeah. this means that you reduce energy costs. I mean, one of the biggest issues that the Irish people have faced, and particularly our small businesses, yeah. has been the crippling increase in energy prices because we're reliant on oil and energy supplies from regions that are vulnerable to that, conflict. That, that, that's absolutely correct. And that, that's, that's a, you know, a very rational way of looking at that. But is it possible to have our CO2 output 2018 to 2030, half of the, we're halfway through that now, only with carrots? Are you seriously saying that there is no compulsion needed? I, I think that's the problem is, I mean, I'll, I'll talk as a Donegal man, mm-hmm. you know, if you talk to a family here locally and you say, we need you to meet your responsibilities, mm-hmm. um, they're going to say, well, I can't afford to retrofit my home. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I am relying on coal or turf or logs to heat my home. So you could, I, super, I insula- to- it's, you could super insulate houses. Um, we've talked about the housing crisis, and I'm not sure where the uh, labor and, and resources to um, retrofit the existing houses are if we can't even build enough houses for the people. But the reality of it seems to me that... A way to fund that, if it were possible, which I think is tenuous, uh, would be with a carbon tax so that you have both carrot and stick. What's Sinn Féin's position on the carbon tax? Well, what we've opposed is increasing carbon tax in a cost of living crisis recently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and what we have put forward, uh, I mean, there's a whole ream of uh, pieces of legislation, of bills, of policy papers that we have presented in the last, uh, you know, year and a half from our that, that, that carbon tax, and- That carbon tax is something that goes into the general exchequer. And if that tax is not collected as carbon tax, it has to be collected in some other way. Isn't it possible to have a revenue neutral carbon tax so that it would deter people, push people towards reducing and eliminating CO2 emissions? They don't end up any poorer, but their their choices are shaped by that. You see, the, the difficulty, and I gave you the example of the Donegal uh, person who has a low mm-hmm. income, reliant on hard fuels, you know, will be paying carbon tax on all of those fuels um, and punished for behaviour that they cannot, you know, change. If you mm-hmm. live in Donegal, for example, you're not going to have uh, an infrastructure to move towards electrification mm-hmm. uh, of your car, of your vehicle, you know, if you could afford it. So my problem is, is you're taxing people 
who have the no ability to change their behaviour, no financial yeah, yeah, ability that, to that's, change I their think that's an important point. I think that's an important point that, that if the tax is intended to shape behaviour and that behaviour simply can't be shaped, that, 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 that is a weakness of that. But it, it's not a fatal weakness of it because at least it collects finance from that rather than from other, some other area of the economy and it does shape behaviour to that regard and it would, for example, deter one-off homes on the side of a hill and other very unsustainable development. I don't want to go too much into the weeds of that, but is it possible in the way that some politicians are winking at anti-traveller sentiment? Sinn Féin is winking at farmers who don't want to change their practices and saying, Asher, you know, you'll be grand, don't worry, we won't have to, you won't have to meet those targets, low and all as they are for the agriculture sector. No, no, you, you have to be serious about a just transition. I mean, I, I give the mm-hmm. example of, you know, when we introduced the recycling bins uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, people didn't become avid environmentalists overnight. It saved them money. They sort of you know? did. They sort uh, of did. But it saved them money. Yeah, you know? no, but people were very, very good at doing that. They understood it was communicated and people understood that they had to do something different. And in fact, Irish levels of compliance with, for example, sorting rubbish is very high. I think perhaps if you are paying more for the black bin, then you are more motivated to uh, to sort things, not throw in the black bin things that shouldn't go in the black bin. But I don't want to get too, I have a few topics uh, that I want to go through, so I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on, on any of them. Um, I mentioned there that Sinn Féin has taken, you know, sometimes a courageous positions on some issues. And Sinn Féin has been, I think, partially, but only partially, correctly been compared to some of the maybe right-wing populist parties on the continent i don't i, I think there's a, a you know a partial validity to that but i wouldn't i wouldn't say that, that that they map exactly but the one thing that i think is relevant there is that the demographic of people who vote for for example the afd in germany and for uh rally national the former national front party in france the demographics are very very similar and would you be fearful that one of the reasons that Sinn Féin is successful on that is because you haven't been tested? Those parties, AfD, National Front, are up against incumbent parties who have perhaps a more left-wing outlook, but have been in power. Sinn Féin might have that more left-wing outlook, but it hasn't been in power. Do you think that there are people on the sidelines who are just biding their time and thinking, okay, well, we don't get that vote from that demographic now, but give Sinn Féin a couple of years in power and get a bit of disillusionment and we'll be able to go into those type of communities and with that type of demographic and get a significant vote for perhaps hard right policies. Is that a danger? Well, I think in Ireland we've been fortunate, um, uh, perhaps uniquely in Europe, Mm -hmm. not to have a strong hard rights political party mm-hmm. um, established here but it's important for all of us not to be complacent and it's important to listen to the concerns of the communities i mean my approach to politics and i know it's the approach of my colleagues across Sinn Féin across the island is to identify the problems that our society faces and try to come up with solutions and as i said earlier we've been fortunate um particularly with the likes of Owen O'Brien and Pierce Doherty, mm-hmm. who are very, very focused You're on problem solving. You're name-checking them, you know that they're popular. Yeah, yeah and, and, but, I, but in fairness, like they, they're, they're very serious people. 
um, you know, in terms of what needs to be done. I mean, Pierce Doherty, as our finance spokesperson for years, has focused on a costed alternative budget. You know, mm -hmm. so everything we say we will do, we provide evidence of where we'd find the money for. So if we say we're going to deliver 3,000 hospital beds over the next three years, we demonstrate where the money comes. If we say 21,000 social affordable housing, we show where the money comes from. So there is a responsibility. So for me, it's straightforward. We, we may get our chance after the next election, the people of Ireland will decide. And one huge area for us is going to be housing. We are mm -hmm. absolutely determined to turn around the housing crisis. Um, health, of course, uh, climate, uh, you know, just transition, energy independence. They're the, the key areas. And of course, pushing on for United Ireland. Okay. And just on a personal level, how are Sinn Féin politicians different from politicians from other parties? Well, I, I think that's, you know, because we haven't been part of the traditional um, political establishment, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, one of them has been in government in our state for all of these years. I like to believe that we'll bring a fresh approach, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I think we have a sense of urgency, uh, a sense of ambition. Maybe we haven't been ground down by being part of that system uh, of government. Um, to to degree, we have, haven't, haven't had to make hard decisions. Well, we're looking forward to making hard decisions. You know, obviously, uh, you know, if you look at the North, we've been in government in the North and we've made hard decisions. Uh, we, we've reached across huge political divides uh, there. But I, 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 I'm around, I'm a public representative of William for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like, I do not want to sit on the sidelines anymore. I want to be in government. I want to give Sinn Féin the opportunity okay. to, to change the issues that are of importance all across the country. Okay, okay. One thing that I know is just as a personal level different for Sinn Féin representatives is that there's a number of undertakings that candidates are required to sign before they're like made officially Sinn Féin candidates. One is to covenant a pretty large whack of your salary to the party, which uh, makes the party quite rich. That has run into difficulties with donation uh, limits and the Sinn Féin have sort of wriggled around that and have, have um, TDs, I think, officially personally paying for party expenses, which which comes within that. Sinn Féin, I think representatives or candidates also sign an undertaking to resign their position uh, in certain circumstances if they leave the party or if they're expelled and so forth. And those are th those things absolutely don't happen in other parties. The philosopher Edmund Burke, uh, Irishman, uh, born about 400 years ago, he was an MP for Bristol and he wrote, in England I should say, he wrote about whether elected politicians should be delegates or should be representatives. And the, the difference between the two, that, that nexus was essentially whether voters are electing someone whose judgment they trust to go off and make decisions or whether they're just choosing someone who will follow instructions and who doesn't really, isn't really expected to, or might not even be allowed to have any original thoughts. Obviously, all politicians end up being a mixture of those those two types. But would it be fair to say that Sinn Féin TDs are fairly far towards the delegate end of the spectrum compared to other parties? No, I, I, like I am a passionate and proud Donegal man. Mm -hmm. My job as a TD, um, uh, you know, a, a delegate from my people, a representative of my people, mm -hmm. is to go into the parliament and represent their real lived experiences to try and improve their lives. Sure, sure um, but, but, but any sort of freelancing is pretty sharply dealt with by Sinn Féin 
isn't it? No, no, no. I, I mean, what I would say to you is, I suppose I always compare it with a football team. Mm. I mean, if you ever want to achieve anything in life, you have to have discipline. You have to have a shared goal, a sense of the team, a sense of uh, cohesion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that is part of our success, is that we have had people who all across, be they councillors, TDs, MEPs, sure, I'm, MPs, I'm, I'm not disputing you know, that, but compared to different parties fall on different, if you make that spectrum between delegate and representative, different parties will fall in different spots on that. I think it is fair to say that Sinn Féin is maybe a bit closer to the delegate end than most of the other parties. I, I think we have a discipline about what we do. We take what we do very seriously. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily an accusation, but in comparison to other parties, that is the case, isn't it? Well, I would say this. You can, call I mean, it, I mean, you can represent it positively. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a negative you know, thing necessarily. I, I, I don't see myself as being a, a franchise holder. You know, I, I share a set of values with Irish Republicans all across the country, be they mm. Cork, Waterford, Belfast, Galway, Dublin, you know, rural, urban. Um, we're all different. We all have different needs in our, but we have a shared vision for the country. Uh, obviously, we want to see a new Ireland, a united Ireland. We want to see strong health services, public services. Services, you know, so we have a, a shared vision. I'm very proud of how we, you know, we carry out uh, our, our approach. I mean, I'm the whip for the Sinn Féin party in the doll, um, and I have to say, they're You're probably the last person who would admit that in that case. Yeah, you know, look, I, it's not a hard job. But, you know, the people I work with share our vision, our dream of what we want to do. Uh, okay, I, I, I understand, I understand that because one thing that is notable is that Article 4 of Bunnock and Heron talks about ministers and their duties. And there's also the Ministers and Secretaries Act from literally 100 years ago. And this says that ministers are accountable and answerable only to the doll. And it would be unconstitutional for you, you know, you could well end up being a minister in the next doll or any other Sinn Féin minister to put yourself in a position where you have to get permission from your party to carry out any of your ministerial duties. You're aware of that, I'm, I'm sure. And the reason I'm asking this is because you'll be aware um, your party colleague uh, Martino Mullor was the finance minister in Stormont. In January 2017, he wrote an email uh, to a person called Ted Howell asking him, and the quote is, would you be content if I were to sign off the business plan on Wednesday afternoon? So he was asking Ted Howell about enacting a particular policy decision that it was Omolor's, the, the minister's responsibility to take that decision. And that email was not sent on the regular departmental and ministerial email account. It was you know, sent with like a Hotmail, Gmail type account. We only know it exists because it was uncovered by the independent inquiry into the cash rash uh, scandal. And that inquiry found as fact that Omolor, the Sinn Féin minister, was asking for Ted Howell's consent for the proposed course of action. And um, I don't think there's any dispute that uh, Ted Howell was, or you know, perhaps still is, a senior member of the IRA. Omolor was the finance minister. He told the inquiry that he was just asking for Ted Howell's advice. They obviously didn't believe him. They found his fact the reverse. Now, I don't want to get into that. That discussion has been done to death. I don't want to get into it. And I'm sure you would, you know, repeat what, what, uh, what Martino Omolor said. But I'll just leave the listeners with one quote they can make up their mind. The exact quote from the email is, would you be content if I were to sign off on the business plan on Wednesday afternoon? And the reason that's controversial is because it goes to the heart of the issue of whether or not Sinn Féin is being run behind the scenes by the Army Council of the IRA. That's the essentially the allegation. And I'm sure you would deny that. But would you 
except that when people see that, they have a legitimate cause for concern. Well, the IRA you, even if exist. you deny it, it looks bad. At least, would you accept that? Well, the, the IRA doesn't exist anymore. You know, they, they've they've left the scene. That's what we all built the peace process to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have today are people of the highest caliber uh, that we have as TDs. Of course, we have mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who are every political party, uh, as they should, have mm-hmm. expert political advisors, um, people who give them advice. But that's what it is, advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, the decisions will be made by the elected people. Okay, that, that, that wording certainly doesn't sound like advice. And it was very curious indeed that it was sent on a, on a back channel but you are currently the chief whip you're also a, a front bench uh, spokesperson it is highly likely that you would be a minister i don't want to uh, jinx you now and <laughs> pork but it's highly likely that you'd end up being a minister in a future Sinn Féin-led government and i think the question that needs to be asked is would that nexus where you are both a party member and a senior party member and a minister, would that two-way relationship be substantially the same for ministers in the government in the South as it has been in Stormont, for Sinn Féin ministers in Stormont, or would it be likely to be different? Well, just to be clear, nobody tells our ministers in the North what to do. Uh, they make the decisions. They're elected by the people. They make mm-hmm. the decisions. And nobody will tell our ministers, if we're elected into government uh, in Dublin, mm-hmm. uh, what to do. The, the, the elected ministers would, would will decide. Would you accept, given Article 4 of the Constitution, that, which of course does not apply to Stormont, but if that communication had been made by a minister in the South, in the government and the Republic, that would certainly be a prima facie case that that was a breach of that constitutional requirement. Well, well, people can take whatever interpretation they want out of the communication between Marcino Muller and, and, and Ted Howell. Yeah. They can take whatever interpretation. What I'm saying to you very clearly uh, is that Sinn Féin ministers elected across the island of Ireland, uh, uh, you know, obviously there have been elected in the north. Hopefully there will be uh, in due course uh, in the 26 counties uh, uh, to the, the Dáil and, uh, and and to the Oireachtas. Um, that's, you know, they will make their own decisions. And, you know, to be absolutely clear, I, I've, I've, I'm going to name check them again. Does anybody believe Owen O'Brien or Pierce Doherty would be told what to do by anybody? I mean, these are people, or Mary Lou MacDonald, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hopefully will be the next T-shirt. Mary mm-hmm. Lou Macdonald doesn't get told what to do by anybody. You know, Mary Macdonald is a woman of the utmost ability. She's had a, she's had a couple of curious U-turns, but I'll, I'll leave that aside. But I want you to return, and my, my question is very precise. Will that three-way party-minister-government relationship that Sinn Féin has when it has ministers who are active in the North, will it be substantially the same in the South? Well, just to be clear, we will put our manifesto. Yeah, no, no, just, but start with the yes or a no. Uh, well, I'm going to going to answer your question if you let me. Okay, but if it's we, a yes or no question. We, Give elucidate, but start to, with the yes. I believe me, I absolutely want to answer your okay, question. Okay, go ahead. I've no, I have no, I have no fear of your question. I good, good, good. I have good. every confidence in the, in what we will do. I mean, what what we will do is put our manifesto to the people. Mm-hmm. Um, if the people vote us to go into government, we will look to implement the manifesto through a program for government. So the only thing that our ministers, that our Taoiseach, hopefully Mary Lou Macdonald, will be focused on is implementing 
the programme for government, the manifesto, that's it. And, and of course, we'll take advice from a range of people, both uh, inside Sinn Féin. Of course, there's much greater expertise outside Sinn Féin in a whole range of matters. I mean, I wouldn't be so arrogant to think that within Sinn Féin, we have all the knowledge and expertise on housing, mm-hmm. on health, on climate change, on fisheries, my own brief. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I talk to people all across the industry in fisheries because I don't have all the knowledge. I mm-hmm. wouldn't be so arrogant to believe so. So no, we, we will take our direction from the people in, in how we're voted and we will implement our programme for government based on what the people voted for. Yeah, yeah but I didn't, I, I, I didn't hear a yes or no there. And the yes or no that I'm asking for is, will that three-way relationship for southern ministers when they exist be substantially different or substantially the same to what goes on in Stormont? Just to be very clear, north and south, mm-hmm. the only people who make decisions in our party are the elected leadership of our party. That's it. Is, is so that, that, are you therefore saying that it will be substantially the same? There's, there's, there's no IRA, there's no hidden hand, there's no anybody, you know, what, what you have is Mary Lou MacDonald, mm-hmm. Michelle O'Neill, but Connor I mean, Murphy, T- T- Ted Howell was a senior member of the IRA. Anybody who follows Jerry Adams on Twitter will know this uh, wordplay of Ted. This is a reference to Ted Howell. Jerry Adams had used a, a, a teddy bear, and and this is a wink at uh, Ted Howell. He was somebody who was. I think essentially on the run for about 30 years, it is very difficult to explain the level of influence he has apart from his well, record in the IRA. I'm fortunate, William, I'm, I'm fortunate to know Ted Howell for a mm-hmm. long, long time. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what persona people want to provide of Ted. Ted has played a fundamental role in developing the peace process. He's been a sage, wise advisor I'm not disputing that. But when he was was being asked that question, he was being asked that question because he was a senior member of the IRA. Not at all. Not at all. He was being asked the question because he's a respected, knowledgeable advisor in our party for many, many years. Uh, He wasn't in the party. He was on the run. He's somebody of the highest integrity. You know, I have to say, like I would dismiss any attempt to, you know, create some sort of a sense. I mean, I've been lucky to know him. I'm 50 years of age. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I knew war for the first half of my life. Thanks to people like Ted Howell, I haven't known war for the second half of my life. My son, my stepson, they will never know conflict mm-hmm. thanks to people like Ted Howell. So yes, he may or may not have been uh, involved in the IRA in his past, but my God, he's played a huge contribution in bringing an end to conflict. And we owe sure. an awful he, lot to people he, like he, Ted Howell. He, but he has, I think, I've tried to find out. I think he has never been a, so much as a candidate for a, an urban district council for Sinn Féin. And you speak of him in glowing terms and you know him and I don't. It is difficult to explain that level of influence and, as you say, a towering figure in terms of his membership of uh, Sinn Féin. You know, I'm sure he might be a member of the local golf club or the, the church choir, but he was it would seem to me, answering that question in his capacity as at least a senior former member of the IRA, it is difficult not to explain. Not, not at all. Uh, 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 Ted Howell, I mean, if you knew Ted, mm-hmm. you know, if, you wouldn't even ask the question if you knew Ted, because Ted is the last person in the world to tell anybody or be so arrogant to believe he could tell anybody want to, what, what to do. He, he, I've watched him for so many years at meetings where he would, you know, he, he, he just, it's the, for me, it's the patience, it's the 
dignity in which he conducts himself uh, and just the sage advice that he's always given. So I, I'm absolutely convinced. And I know Marcin O'Muller well mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Marcin was a formidable minister and I don't believe for a moment that anybody would have told Marcin what to do. But he was also a person of consens uh, consensus and respect. And I accept the explanation he gave for that uh, communication he had with Ted, which was that he was seeking advice uh, and cooperation on a very serious matter. End of story. Okay. In March 2022, which is coming up on nearly two years ago, um, Sinn Féin deleted vast swathes of its website, particularly including dozens of statements about Vladimir Putin and Russia that tended to have a rather more sympathetic uh, view of Vladimir Putin than might be fashionable. So, for example, one of the comments deleted was Lynn Boylan's uh, statement in 2019, so five years after the invasion of Crimea and uh, eastern Ukraine, said that the EU was being overly confrontational against Russia. About a year after that invasion, so a year after the initial invasion of Crimea, Lynn Boylan and other Sinn Féin MEPs refused to vote for what they called an unbalanced European Parliament resolution condemning human rights abuses in Russia and criticising Russia's annexation of Crimea. And in 2018, Putin sent GRU agents, so Russian military intelligence agents, to murder Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia with a nerve agent. That attempt ended up also poisoning two uh, British police officers and a civilian, um, Charlie Rowley, who found the bottle of perfume that was uh, used to transport the poison by the hitman, and they just tossed it aside, apparently. He gave it to his partner, uh, Don Sturgis, who sprayed it on her wrist, and she died as a result. The Irish government's reaction to that was to act in coordination with the EU and every country, including Ireland, expelled Russian diplomats. Ireland uh, expelled one diplomat. Sinn Féin's response to that was to condemn the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar at the time, for taking that action. Was Sinn Féin wrong to cozy up to a murderous dictator like Putin? No, I think I think that's an unfortunate way to put the question. With respect, William, I mean. But if you go uh, through, if you go through the totality of that, there's no question that prior to two years ago, the direction of the apologia from Sinn Féin was far more pro Putin's regime than is comfortable now. No, I mean our perspective in terms of conflict resolution. Um, has always been one that the Irish state would have an independent foreign policy, mm -hmm. that we wouldn't be allied to NATO, mm -hmm. um, that we would seek to establish our place in terms of, you know, uh, honest broker, uh, non-aligned to military uh, partnerships and to try to, you know, uh, be involved in genuine independent conflict resolution. So, so, so what, why, why, why refuse to vote for a European Parliament motion condemning human rights abuses in occupied Ukraine? Well, I, I think the, the I mean, obviously, since the invasion of Ukraine, the full scale invasion of Ukraine that we've seen in recent years, mm -hmm. uh, we have been, you know, front and center uh, in condemning the uh, outrageous imperialist uh, actions of uh, of Putin. But that's that's uh, correct, and, and and I want to acknowledge that that is absolutely correct. Since February 2022, and there are other MEPs who have taken a rather more curious line on that. Prior to 2022, since prior to the full scale invasion, the totality of Sinn Fein's comment on Russia is very very much more sympathetic than seems to be justified. 
at the time, bearing in mind that Putin had attacked and invaded Crimea, annexed Crimea and had proxy forces occupying eastern Ukraine. And after that happened, Sinn Féin MEPs refused to condemn human rights abuses, which are legion in the Russian occupied areas of, of Ukraine. I, I would say that what we sought to do, and, and, and often the positions that you take can be misinterpreted, mm-hmm. what we had sought to do was have a, a, a position independent from the NATO allied uh, analysis uh, that was there. And I, I'm not accusing you of this, but there are voices we may have heard who, when they say they take an independent view, in my view, don't at all. All they do is they just put it into reverse gear and whoever NATO is against, they are in favour of, which leaves them in the absolutely insane position of supporting brutal, murderous dictatorships. Even then, even in 2018, there was no shortage of examples of absolutely horrendous human rights abuses by the occupying forces in Crimea, including like teenagers, young 16, 17-year-old kids being beaten senseless for having, uh, having a Ukrainian flag. Do you really think that refusal to condemn that was taking a balanced view? Well, I, I think what we had hoped, um, uh, uh, you know, after the annexation of Crimea um, was to find some type of resolution, uh, some type of conflict resolution uh, solution to what was taking place. Mm. It's clear that internationally that has failed. Uh, Putin now has moved in um, and obviously attempted to take over the entire country. Mm -hmm. Uh, That failed and now has uh, obviously looking to annex um, the eastern provinces and states. um, No, sorry, I'm I'm going to pose you on that part because I keep up and I keep a very close watch on internal Russian media. There is no question, if you follow what the Russian elite are saying to each other, there isn't a shadow of doubt that they're full-blooded intent is to wipe Ukraine off the map. There's no question about that. And they have said that clearly and loudly for many years, actually since the 1990s, since uh, even before Putin was in power. Uh, it's clear that Putin is very close to that. Putin has, has for example, exhumed a Nazi-supporting white Russian, let's say, say czarist Russian general who was buried in exile in Switzerland, who was a strong supporter of the of the fascists in Germany, having been exiled from the communist Russia. Putin had his body returned and was unsatisfied with how grand the mausoleum that he was being buried in and allegedly Putin personally paid for a far grander burial uh, place for uh, this guy. Ivan Ilin is his name. That is not the type of regime that you can deal with in terms of conflict resolution, is it? Oh, and I think where we're at now is um, we're in a very, very bad place, not just in terms of Russia, Ukraine. Yeah, no, 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 but, but, but yeah, the hints were coming. So, for example, at the time that your MEPs were refusing to condemn human rights abuses, the human rights abuses were, for example, local Putin loyalist leaders in places like Chechnya declaring essentially that open season on gay and lesbian people, that gay and lesbian people could be murdered without any judicial process whatsoever by the uh, by but, their but seriously, forces. William. Ser- seriously, William. Yeah. If you look at the response of uh, the European 
commission uh, leadership mm -hmm. uh, of many European leaders to the slaughter in Gaza. Like, do you think there's consistency in foreign policy? No, absolutely globally? not. Um, but I'm holding you to a higher standard, and 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 I will and I will and I have tackled them on that when I speak to, to them. Me, your challenge to me is that we didn't follow the European consensus. No, no, no. My challenge to you is that your MEPs refused to vote no, for no. A, a resolution condemning those no, human no, rights no, abuses. And, 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 you know, we, we may have been uh, wrong, we may have been naive, but we had hoped for um, an approach that could resolve the conflict, uh, the annexation of Crimea, the threats to Ukrainian sovereignty. That was our hope. We had a disagreement uh, yeah. with the, I suppose, the NATO point of view mm -hmm. uh, in relation to that. That's it, and and the story. But I can tell you that when we seen very clearly Russia's intent, uh, undeniable intent now at this stage, we have not uh, failed for one moment in challenging and standing up and supporting the international consensus which is you know around sanctions that, that, around that's true I would, I would accept i would accept so, that since since yeah. since uh, february 2022 so i would accept that that's, that's correct and the middle east and the various other conflicts across the world and yep. that's part of the problem i think you would agree william is that if you look at the west mm. what is termed the west europe and north america the traditional uh, leadership that's there, unfortunately, because of their lack of consistency, I think they've undermined their standing in the world. Yeah, that, that's, that's entirely emerging... true, and I will I will put that to them when I speak to them. Uh, um, but I, I will put your potential inconsistencies to you when I now, now now that I've got you here. And usually, lawyers say you should never ask a witness a question unless you're sure you know the answer, and that might be true for interviewers as well. But I have one question that I genuinely do not know the answer to, and the question is what's up with rural ireland and because i would draw a thread between a few different things and one of them would be and this is disguised almost as certainly buried in rsa the road safety authorities uh, figures the variation in road deaths in ireland is absolutely gobsmacking and if you said that if you went from like the you know the best to the worst county in ireland and there was a seven percent difference in the road death rate you'd think that would just be noise and the in the statistics just kind of random stuff and um, but if you saw there was 70 percent difference in the death rates from you know one county to another you'd say you know there has to be something there maybe it's infrastructure issues or whatever but it's not seven percent it's not 70 percent it is 700 percent from the worst county to the best. So if you take essentially the pale, if they were an independent country, they would actually have the best road safety record on earth. Places like Donegal and other border counties have horrendous death rates that are akin to third world countries. In fact, if you die on the roads in Ireland, you are almost certainly in a BMW, not a BMW car, but the borders Midlands and West. It is an absolutely enormous difference. In addition to that, if you look at the demographics, it is overwhelmingly male. And if you think that, you know, for example, if you're in a car accident, one reason you might be in a car accident is because you're careful and you crash into something. But of course, you might be not careful and something crashes into you. And that second situation, of course, is largely random. An idiot doesn't take, you know, doesn't discriminate on who they crash into. And for that to leave an enormous bias in the statistics, about 70 or 80 percent male road deaths, very heavily concentrated in the under 35s. There has to be, I think, a sociological explanation there. 
And I throw in two other things as well. There is exceptionally tragic events, what are called family extinction murders. And that phrase kind of explains itself. And we have quite a few, too many to uh, talk about, but typically where almost always male, uh, perhaps head of household, kills themselves and the entire family. There's a very high correlation between these very high road death rates and those family extinction events. And there's other sort of rejections of authority. And you'd think of the the, the former Quinn companies in Monaghan, Cavan and Fermanagh. And, you know, you have a situation whereby, okay, Quinn, he gambled and he lost, he lost his company. He tried very hard to hang on to his money and I won't comment on that further on legal advice. But the fact that you have a huge public campaigns which are based on some sort of grievance culture that in some way them fellas up in Dublin are responsible for this and all the way up to kidnapping and torture of you know one of the executives. Um, to me, all those things might be entirely unrelated, but it does seem like there is a sociological difficulty with young males in BMW counties, quite rural areas. Do you have any, I mean, you live in Donegal. Do you, am I making, am I connecting things that are entirely unrelated? Well, I'll tell you a story. Uh, if you go back to the 2000s, there was a period in the Inishowen Peninsula, which is a population of about 40,000 people, where we had lost 25 young people under the age of 25 and 18 months. I'll say that again, it's astonishing. Yep, 25 yep. young people. Under out, age out of what population? 40,000. Okay, 40, so, so, so that would be vastly more so, than all so, of the road deaths in uh, Dublin, population well over a million. Yeah. So, so you're, you're going back to the 2000s, about yeah. 20 years ago, okay? But the reason why I say that is there was then a concerted effort with the Road Safety Authority, with local authorities, the councils, um, particularly aimed at young people, uh, and that was hugely successful. We actually got road deaths in Ireland down to some of the lowest in the world in recent ah, yes. years. No, no, it is the lowest in the world because you're mixing up two different areas. One is the urban east, essentially, with phenomenally low levels, and other I know, but areas. Look at the road with... infrastructure, with with respect. I mean, if you compare the road infrastructure in the west of Ireland, and, and I mean, for God's sake, uh, and rural to, Wicklow. Uh, well, if you compare it to certainly the pale, as you referred to earlier on, there's no, no, no but this is an awfully rural Wicklow. Those would go into my pale thing, and they have not one of the lowest. They have actually the lowest road death rates in the world. Ireland does well because one of the, I suspect, tricks of the RSA is that they publish the number of road deaths per county without adjusting it for the massive differences in population. So when you see Roscommon having roughly the same number of road deaths as Kildare, you don't immediately think that Roscommon has perhaps an eighth of the population of Kildare and therefore has eight times higher rate of road deaths. There has to be something else going but on you, there. But you, 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 you mean, without, because I mean, obviously last year we've seen uh, an increase in road deaths and that, yep. that that's devastating for people who work so hard to get them down but I, I, I'm saying to you that if you look at the level of road deaths in Ireland in, in the decades that have gone compared to certainly recent years there's been a huge success here a huge success there in, has been yes there's been in big, turning it big, around big huge cuts, success but, but that doesn't explain the enormous disparity well, uh, all I can say to you is that if I'm driving on the roads in the west of Ireland, I mean, I know because we've campaigned for years to have equality of access in terms of motorways, rail connections. You know, there's, I mean, to get by in places like the west of Ireland, you have to have a car. Yeah, like, that's you true. Just have I agree. To, you know, so I, I don't think it's a fair comparison with respect to I me. Mean, well, I'm, but, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not trying to be fair. I'm just trying to wonder, is there a sociological issue there? 
I think there was an issue. To, I mean, certainly, you know, there was a. I suppose that the fearlessness of youth. You know, there was a need to educate young people that this is just tin. Like you're when you're driving yep, yep, at yep. speeds of of sixty miles plus. Yeah, but that, uh, per I mean, those are engineering issues. Those are you know law enforcement issues, but, which are a big issue as well. But it worked. You know, it worked. And I want to give one example, William, because this is powerful. The road safety road show. What was that? That was basically people who were ambulance drivers. Gardy, surgeons in hospitals doing a play that was really hard hitting about the reality of what happens when something goes wrong on a road. And then it, all, it ended up with somebody who was in a wheelchair, paralyzed by a road accident. So we were really punching people hard. You know, the ads on TV, you've seen them all. You know, we were really hitting hard with people who had lost their children in road accidents. That's still now been... Um, pushed again thank god and you know to try and get people so there's no room for complacency but i don't i wouldn't describe it as a sociological problem but there's no room for complacency and i i can speak with authority about this i've seen disastrous levels of road deaths in my own community 20 years ago that aren't there today but unfortunately there are people dying again and we need to go back at it again absolutely uh, okay, going back about two elections ago, Sinn Féin, in their wisdom, ran three candidates in Donegal, and that had an unhappy outcome for you, and you lost your seat, I'm sure, that that might not be the best memory for yourself. And then, perhaps, the analogy is that a cat who sits on a hot griddle will never sit on a hot griddle again, and will never sit on a cold griddle either, just in case. And that was seen in the last election, when Sinn Féin clearly ran far too few candidates and left a whole lot of seats essentially on the table. You've seen the outcome of the constituencies commission. Are you going to take a few risks? Yeah, I mean, we're going to run the maximum number of candidates that we sensibly can. Like in Donegal, we'll run three candidates and, and this time obviously we'll hope to elect three. You could argue based on our result in 2020 that, you know, we, we may have you been able got, to elect yeah, three you got, yeah. at, at that time. So, you know, absolutely. And one of the criticisms that people have had has been, you know, why did you not run enough candidates uh, in 2020, which is legitimate. Now, as you know, in 2019, we did a pretty awful local election, a European election. We couldn't have known in the middle of 2019 that in about seven months time we were going to have 25 percent of the vote you know going from nine percent of the local to 25 percent in the general so but we will we will run the maximum number of candidates and try to elect as, as strong a team as tds as we can um i'll tell you a very brief story when i was at the rds count at the last election and uh as you do, you chat to kind of various people randomly at these things. And there was uh, two Sinn Féin, I guess, canvassers, one maybe in his 20s, one possibly a guy in his 60s. And um, the younger fella brought up a tally sheet on which Sinn Féin had gotten a pretty decent vote. And he, I will redact the language slightly. And he said, do you look at that? We were told not to canvass that street where that box had come from. And he was asking the uh, the older man why what's going on there and the older guy i think probably correctly said that chevain had a database and they had been flipped out of it by every house on that street when they had canvassed maybe 10 or 15 years previously and that's why it was in the database not even to bother canvassing that street my analysis of that which i shared with them was that the people who flipped them out of it had their kids still living at home 15 years later and this was the kids who were and still living at home with their parents who were voting for Sinn Féin as essentially kicking against the system. You have, as you said, swung around pretty wildly, 9% literally less than five years ago, probably something like four times that maybe in the elections coming up if polls are correct. Are you afraid of disappointing people? I think that you have to um, 
you, you have to, as I said, I've been around 20 years now and I, I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I want to go on to government. And yeah, that means, you know, I, I'm conscious that we may not succeed. Um, I'm not arrogant enough to believe, you know, I don't have this absolute belief, but I, I know that we have a good heart. I know that we have good plans. Um, and I think it's time. It's time for us to go in there and we need to run the maximum number of candidates. The story you tell rings true to me in terms of uh, I've seen people in Donegal. I could see it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I've won elections and lost elections, as you've said. Um, but what I could see in 2020 was an older generation of people saying, my son or my daughter won't speak to me if I don't vote for Sinn Féin, you know, so it's not just uh, young people, it's their parents. And as it, uh, because they've seen that, you know, I want my son or my daughter to have a roof over their head. They work hard. They went to university or they trained hard. I want them to have a future. I don't want them to emigrate to Australia or Canada. So, you know, I think people will give us that chance, but I, I want to use this word again, not to be arrogant and to have a bit of humility about yourself. I mean, for us, I, I, I you know, the people will give us a chance. I do believe we'll get a chance to be in government, but they will vote us out again very quickly if we don't deliver on the programme for government and the manifesto and commitments we've made. Porig McLaughlin, Sinn Féin Chief Whip, Donegal TD, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you very much, William. Go to the website for sources and references from the show. And while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Here's How Podcast, and follow Porig McLaughlin at Porig MacL. And get in touch if you want to suggest a guest or a topic for a future show in 2024. Thanks again to all of the patrons on Patreon. That covers the cost of keeping the podcast going. And if you could throw in a couple of euro once or twice a month, please do go and sign up at patreon.com slash here's how. That link is on the website. Also there you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone or by email. All that information is at www.hereshow.ie. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. The co-producer is Kevin Wolf. Thank you for listening. Listener.